You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Happy Easter to you. Um, I want to welcome you. If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really a, such a joy to have you uh, with us. A number of you, you maybe you're a family member or a friend that someone invited, so uh, thanks for, uh, if church is new to you, thanks for taking the risk and uh, coming, and we're uh, just thrilled that you are with us today. Uh, we're going to be talking, obviously, about Easter, and specifically, I want to talk about hope. I want to talk about Easter as our greatest hope. But to begin, I want to ask you a question. What are you afraid of? Think about it for a moment. What is your greatest fear? You've probably seen those studies where they interview people and then rank their fears. Maybe you're familiar with that. One famous one uh, says that the greatest human fear is the fear of giving a public speech. So pray for me if I can make it through this, but uh, it's the fear of public speaking. It's the number one fear. That same study said that the number three fear is the fear of death. Number one, public speaking. Number three, the fear of death. And it was that survey that, that caused the great theologian Jerry Seinfeld, to say, so you're telling me that at the average funeral, most people would rather be the person in the casket than they would be asked to stand up and offer a eulogy at the funeral. Now, I don't mean to be insensitive to anybody who is grieving a loved one here today, but I just pass on Seinfeld's joke because it exposes really the absurdity that any fear would supersede the fear of death. I mean, surely not. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing that's a greater threat to us than death. And if you look at the list of fears, many of the other fears are death-related. So the fear of flying makes the top 10. That is a fear. Well, nobody's afraid of flying. They're afraid of the plane ceasing to fly and crashing. They're afraid of death. That's the issue. Another great fear is the fear of deep water. I'm not a fan of deep water, so I get that one. Uh, I can fly, but I don't like deep water. Well, what's the fear of deep water? Why not shallow water? Because in deep water, you can drown, and then you die. So when you think about it, what greater concern do any of us have than death? I mean, death is coming for all of us, and there is no escape. It does not matter how old you are. It does not matter your gender. It does not matter your race. We are all going to die. No matter your wealth, no matter how intelligent you are, uh, no matter what you've accomplished in your life, death comes for all of us. Death is our greatest enemy because death is universal. It wins over everybody. Everybody succumbs and dies at some point. It's universal. It's inescapable. And it's our greatest threat. It's our greatest enemy because it, well, to state the obvious, it ends our lives. 
Death is our greatest fear. Death is our greatest enemy. So why would I talk about death on such a happy day? I'm not trying to ruin a happy day for everybody, but why talk about death at Easter? Well, that's because Easter is God's antidote to death. The Easter story is the ultimate anti-death story. That's what Easter is all about. Christ's resurrection puts death to death. Christ's resurrection is the victory of life over death. Among the various truths that we could draw out of the Easter story, here is a central one. A central truth is that because death is our greatest enemy, Easter delivers our greatest hope. Because death is our greatest enemy, Easter delivers our greatest hope. And to see that, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 26. Now, the context of this chapter is that Paul has been writing to a group of Christian believers, and he's been telling them that the, the resurrection is the heart of our faith, and that if you lose the resurrection, you lose the whole thing. The whole message of Christianity crumbles if Jesus did not rise. And so he's been saying that, and now he's going to sort of demonstrate, he's going to show us why Christ's resurrection delivers our greatest hope. So listen to God's Word. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 19 through 26. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God and the Father, uh, to, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I think there's at least two key ideas in this passage. We're going to look at them both. The first one is this, that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. That's really a big idea here, that Jesus' resurrection um, guarantees our resurrection. And he does this, he demonstrates this point through two, two uh, sort of examples, and both of them are foreign to us. So, uh, Put on your thinking cap a little bit. We're going to try to understand what he's saying here because he gives two examples that if we can see them, they're very powerful, but it's language that's a, a bit unfamiliar to us. So in verse 20, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So he says, Christ's resurrection is like first fruits. What are first fruits? Well, back in the day, in biblical times, a farmer would plant a field, and when the first part of the harvest began to ripen, he would take the first, very first, uh, harvested crops, uh, the first ears of grain that began to, you know, ripen. He would take those, and then they would offer those, those were called the first fruits, the very first things that, that showed up in the crop, and they would offer those to God as a first fruits offering. And here's why they would offer them to God as a first fruits offering. Because 
it was sort of a, a, a promise, a guarantee, an assurance that if the first part of the harvest came in, then the rest would come in as well. It was this proof that, hey, we're going to have a crop this year. It wasn't always a guarantee with weather and other things. We're going to have a crop this year. The crop is beginning to sprout. Or, or, and so this is a tremendous encouragement. So they would offer that to God with gratitude, knowing that a future crop would be harvested in very in the very near future. And in the analogy here saying, he's saying Jesus' resurrection is the first harvested grain, and now there's going to be a huge crop to follow. The crop that follows will be the believers in Jesus, who will, in verse 23, be resurrected at his coming. Verse 23, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The first fruits analogy is so encouraging because it emphasizes the point of certainty. He's saying that if there's a crop uh, at the beginning, if there are some ears of grain that are coming at the beginning, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a promise that the rest of the crop will come. And so with Christ's resurrection, there is an encouragement for us. There, there is a certain hope that because he was, he was raised from the dead, those who believe in him will also rise from the dead. Uh, just as he did with eternal bodies um, when Christ returns. So because death is our greatest enemy, Easter delivers our greatest hope, the hope of future resurrection. Now, the second thing he talks about here to give hope to these believers and to us today is the comparison between Adam and Christ. Look at verse 21. For as by a man, that's speaking of Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So this example takes us back to the very beginning of creation. Um, and he's saying that, you know, in the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. He created Adam and Eve. He put them in a garden paradise that was perfect. They were, they were sin-free. Uh, their relationship with God was perfect. Their relationship with one another was perfect. Their relationship with their environment. They worked the garden. Their relationship in their environment was perfect as well. And so God had told them, you can eat from any tree that you see in the garden. You can eat whatever you want, except one tree. And you may not eat of that tree. Well, they decided that they sort of wanted to be God themselves. They wanted the right to make their own rules. They wanted to determine their own, uh, their own truth. They wanted their own truth. They wanted to determine what they believed would be right and wrong. That's the original sin. And I would say that's probably the characteristic reality of our society today, that I want the freedom to determine what is right and what is wrong without reference to what God says is right and what is wrong. Well, that's what happened there. And so they ate from the tree, and when they did, it was tragic because from that sin um, came death, verse 21, as in Adam all die. So their sin, it says we're in Adam, their sin affected us all. And more than that, we could say it infected us all. We're all born with that same desire to do what I want to do. Um, just, just go back to Grace Kids and encounter any of the two-year-olds. I mean, your kids are sweet, but let's maybe another church's nursery, but, you know, a toddler class. 
But ask any two-year-old, do they want to do what they want to do? That's, that's how we naturally are. Because we are in solidarity with Adam, he was our representative. We are in union with him, we could actually say. So we all are born with this desire, and we all ultimately die. Now, that concept is very difficult for us to understand in an individualistic society like this, that, that a representative's actions could affect us. Um, and that, that we would act in a certain way because of that. Uh, but there are certain, there are certain uh, realities in our world, and our culture, that we can look at and say, okay, I understand representation. We could talk about government and how representatives make decisions that affect us, but something much closer to home might be to be on a team. You know, some of you out watching your kids play soccer yesterday, and uh, if one player scores a goal, then that gain is shared by the entire team. Everybody is credited with that gain, including the people on the bench who weren't playing at all, including the fans who are watching at home who say, we scored, we won. Like, no, we didn't do anything, but we identify with that player as our representative, that team. And so we understand that. In the same way, if a player incurs a penalty, the liability is carried by the entire team even those who were on the bench, and even the fan base who is disappointed to see that happen. And so if I could say in somewhat of a crass way, the Bible doesn't say it quite like this, but we are all born on Team Adam. That is our team. And like him, we want to do what we want to do, not what God wants us to do by nature. And like Adam and Eve, we too will die. And if you just look around the world, we see the, we see the results of this. We see um, what happens when we ignore God and we do things our way instead of His. We see that every day in our world. We see that in our own lives. We know what that's like. We, we see deception and greed and pride wanting everything to go our way for our benefit. We never say it that way, but... That's a, a latent desire that we all know about. Pride, selfishness, drunkenness, materialism, ungratefulness. We know about that. Lust, sexual sin. We're familiar with those temptations and actions. Disrespect and disobedience to parents. Children understand that. Judgmentalism, racism, self-righteousness apathy to the poor and to the needy. We know about that. Jealousy, the sins of the tongue, jealous, uh, uh, like gossip and lying, slander. And the big one that we see in the Bible, idolatry, which is taking anything or anyone and making them a substitute for God. Rather than finding our joy in our Creator Alone, we look for other things to fill that joy and to substitute in his place. And we look at the world, we look at our own lives in a moment of honest reflection, and we say, it's broken. The world is broken, and we are broken as well. The Bible affirms this. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it says, the wages of that sin is death, meaning that what we earn from what we do, what we are paid, wages, what we deserve and earn for our unwillingness to obey God's Word perfectly uh, and to do things that He forbids, the wages of sin is death. That means physical death, 
and spiritual death. So we know from the scripture and we know from our own experience that because of Adam, in Adam, all die. We know that. We, we uh, have loved ones that have died and we also experience that spiritual death as well. But this passage makes clear that not everyone is in Adam anymore. Not everyone is in Adam. Some are in Christ. That's the contrast, verse 22. As in Adam, if Adam's our representative, if we're connected in union with him uh, as a human, then all die and all are sinful, we could add as well. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. There's another team. There's another representative and all of that representative's actions affect us as well, if we believe. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another team with whom we can be connected, or as the Bible says, we can be united to him. To use another sports analogy, you can get in the transfer portal, and you can change teams. And the team, everybody's born into Adam, but we can come to Christ by faith. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, all over the scripture, it, it, it explains to us to be in Christ means to believe that Jesus died on Good Friday on the cross for our sins, that he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. He died for our sins as an atonement. He paid the price. He took the judgment that we should take for failing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. He died in our place. He was buried and rose. And if we turn from our sins and we turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him, we can receive new life and the promise of a certain resurrection in the future when he returns, that death will not defeat us eternally. The dark cloud of death will not have victory over us if we are in Christ. In Christ, all who believe are made alive. Now, this this being on team Jesus, this being in Christ, it doesn't happen by our good works. You don't get on connected to Christ. You don't get in union with Jesus because you're holy enough, because you can't be. You don't get it because you become religious or you're moral. That, that's not what connects you to Christ. We, we receive Christ by faith. It's not what we do. It is a gift to be received. The message of Easter is not, okay, everything's brand new. I'm going to clean up my life. And maybe if I clean it up enough, one day God will accept me. No, that's not what it is. It's that we are sinful and deserve to die on a cross uh, paying for our sin as Christ did. But he has done that for us. He has been resurrected. He is alive. And now through faith, we receive life as a free gift. It's a gift of God for us. This is what it means to be in Christ. It means that we're no longer spiritually dead. We're spiritually alive. In Adam, there is eternal judgment for sin. In Christ, there is eternal life in a new heaven and in a new earth. And, and it's not just I picked this one verse to talk about this. This is one of the most common, if not the most common way to describe a Christian in the whole Bible. Like we call them, I just use the word, we say Christian. I think the word Christian is used twice, maybe three times in the whole Bible. It's a fine term, just the Bible's not real big on it, but it's a fine term. Or we say believer, that's used more. 
We say brother and sister to recognize we're family in the body of Christ. That one's used quite a bit, brother and sister. But probably the most frequent designation in the New Testament, certainly in the letters of the New Testament, the most frequent designation is in Christ, in him, with him. This is the picture. I was in Adam, spiritually dead and blinded. That is, he was my representative and I was connected to him. But through faith, through God's grace to me, I am now in Christ, a believer in Jesus, alive with my eyes open to the truth of who he is and expecting the day he returns. And I am resurrected just like him. Once you believe you are not only in Christ, but the Bible says Christ is in you. That's the hope. The hope of glory is Christ in you. His spirit lives in us. He changes us from the inside. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new purpose. And he gives us new desires. So the hope of the resurrection is, yes, ultimately an eternal hope that we're resurrected to new life. But it's a hope for today and a hope for tomorrow as well for he is in us and with us. So Jesus' resurrection guarantees our own. The first fruits and the Christ and Adam comparison. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection guarantees the renewal of all things. The, the, the resurrection is the first domino that sets in motion the unstoppable progress of life over death. That's, that's where we are. Jesus' resurrection is the first step in God making all things new. That, that's where we are in history right now, that everything was dead, but now it is um, alive. Those who are in Christ are alive. So his story, right now, we have just changed seasons. We have moved from winter to spring and my nasal passages confirm this on a daily basis. And if you are a fellow allergy sufferer, I gotcha. Uh, we're, I'm right there with you. And this is a beautiful time and a painful time. It's a challenging time as well. Well, when Jesus is resurrected, it is a change of the eternal seasons. Because in the fall of Adam, everything becomes winter. But when Christ is resurrected, it is the first buds of spring. It is like the first blossoms on a flower. And one day, all those flowers are going to be in full bloom when he returns. The resurrection of Jesus is like the first leaf, those little sprigs that come off, uh, that come on the trees. We saw them a few weeks ago that announced that spring is here. Life has come. And one day there'll be full foliage when he returns to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. It's like that scene in The Wizard of Oz where everything is black and white, and, and then all of a sudden uh, things begin to show color, and the color spreads throughout like new life, right before getting into, uh, into, before Dorothy goes into Oz. And then it is all colorful. That's what it's like. Everything was in black and white, and now the color has come, and as the message of the gospel spreads, and as people believe, it is all becoming colorful, and one day he will restore all the beautiful color. His resurrection initiated spring. He is risen, and people are being changed who believe in him, and one day will be resurrected like him, and everything will be as it's supposed to be. Christ was made alive first, and then those who belong to him, verse 23. And he says that ultimately he will reign and rule over all and destroy death completely. That's when all things will be made new. I look at verse uh, 25. 
for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Um, well, no, that I'm sorry, I just want to go through 26. The last thing to be destroyed is death. I love what Professor David Garland said. He wrote, graveyards remind us of the brevity of life. Jesus' resurrection reminds us of the brevity of death. Death is only here for a little while. Death is on its deathbed. Death is gasping the final breath of death as we prepare for the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus will return, make all things new, and death will be destroyed, is what the Scripture says here. And not only will death be destroyed, but all of the things that are death-like that came from the fall of Adam, suffering, loneliness, isolation, pain, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, abandonment, uh, all that happens that, that are the signs of death, suffering and pain, they will all be done away with. And the good news of Easter is today, you, everyone in here, anyone in here, you can join what God is doing in renewing all things. You can become connected to Christ. You can be in union with Jesus. You can be in Him. You can be with Him through faith. It just involves turning from your own sin, recognizing that you deserve God's judgment, and turning to Christ, recognizing He died for your sin on a cross, that He was buried, and that He was raised the third day to defeat sin and to defeat death. And you can trust Him. It's very simple when we say trust. It, it means just putting all your weight, all of your hope in Him. And, and you can do that by just expressing your heart to him. There's no magic prayer to pray, but you can just pray your heart. You can communicate to him, uh, I, be I believe that I am in Adam, that I'm a sinful person, and that I'm headed towards eternal death. Not just physical, we're all headed there, but eternal death and uh, judgment. And I believe you died for me. I believe that you made a new way, Jesus. I believe that you are God. I believe that you came up out of the grave to defeat death. And I believe in you. I trust you. I put my whole life in your hands by your grace. Thank you for what you've done for me. You can just communicate something like that to the Lord. And here's what you'll find. When we truly believe in Jesus, we are made new. The Spirit of God comes to live in us, and we receive the eternal hope that we will be with Him forever. And if you are a believer, then be reminded that today our hope is anchored in the empty tomb. That's everything for us. The tomb is empty. Jesus has defeated death, and that is our greatest hope. Our greatest enemy has been defeated. Because death is our greatest enemy, Easter delivers our greatest hope. His resurrection guarantees our own. He's the first fruits. We're coming with the full crop. We were in Adam, but you can be in Christ through faith, connected to him and all of his eternal benefits that he offers. He is making all things new. And this is what we have to look forward to. I'm going to read you, and we'll close here. I'm going to read you one of the last passages of the Bible. This is how the story of the Bible um, ends. So we, we got the full deal here today. We started in the Garden of Eden. We went to Christ, His death and resurrection. And this is how 
the whole story ends in Revelation 21. These aren't the very last verses, but the second to last chapter. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is how it ends. This is where we're headed. This is the conclusion of the story. And this picture here, no more death, no more pain. He is making all things new. That is why Easter delivers our greatest hope, because that is what it's all coming to. Let's pray. Father, I pray today for anyone here that does not know you. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them through the scripture we read today, and I pray they would turn and trust in you, give their life to you. Lord, receive this wonderful gift. Lord, transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your dear son, the kingdom of light. Open their eyes, give them faith in Christ, and give them a new, a new heart and a new hope. Lord, for those of us in the room who already know you, some of us have lost our hope. We come here today with all kinds of struggles and burdens, and our hope, which was once vibrant, feels very empty today. And we pray that you would revive our hope, that you would get our eyes on what you have done, and that in the midst of our own suffering, that we would be able to look ahead and see what is coming, and that would give us a renewed grace for today. Lord, give us the hope that you use all our trials for your glory and for our good, and help us to experience your resurrection power today through healing, through encouragement, through hope, and through perseverance. Come, Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit this day as we celebrate your resurrection power. God, thank you for raising your son from the dead. Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us. And Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes and making it all real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.